5. Actually, you, may be, you might as well begin in verse 1, because it's been a couple of weeks here. And we need to refresh our memories, if you will, because if you recall, verses 1 through 4 have one theme, which is the theme of the qualifications of an earthly high priest. What did God's law say? What did... What did God's word command in an earthly high priest? What were the qualifications that they had to have? And then verses 5 through 10 are going to show how Christ fulfills all of those earthly qualifications and then so much more. Because remember, the whole theme of Hebrews is what? Christ is better, right? Christ is better. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. He's even better than Aaron. And so the author of Hebrews has been marching us through, showing us why what they have in Christ is far superior to what they thought they had under the law, under the old covenant. And so he wants to tell them that. And the reason that the whole book is written is because some of those who have professed Christ as their Savior are now tempted to fall away and go back into Judaism. And returning to Judaism would include a return to all of the Old Testament rituals, all of the Old Testament ceremonies, all of the feasts and the sacrifices, the covenant uh, and priests that they had followed them, all of that would mean you'd be going back to all of that, just like you had before they had made a profession uh, in Christ. Which is why the author of Hebrews has been so adamant to demonstrate that uh, what they have in Christ is far better than anything they previously had under the Old Covenant and under to God, but actually pushing them farther away from God. He wants them to be able to see that, in fact, despite his previous two warning passages, there's still some real reluctance to the idea that the new covenant with Jesus was superior to the old covenant with Moses. That's why he keeps keeps coming back to that. What was the problem? Why, after all that he's done, remember in chapter 1 where he went and talked about how glorious Christ is, and talked about the seven glories of Christ, and then showed how Christ is superior, then warned what happens if you, if you let your ship of salvation sail right on past, your ship of life sail right on past the harbor of salvation, right? Then he warned them again. Uh, talking to them about what would happen beginning in the middle of chapter 3 all the way to the end of uh, chapter 4. What would happen here if uh, they failed to enter God's rest? And so he's been warning them, showing them, and he's been doing that through Scripture. But why were the, why were the uh, Jews having such a problem with this? And the answer lies into their understanding of the holiness of God. They knew from God's word that you could not just approach God any way that you chose. You could not just come into the presence of God and say, hey, I'm here. Here's what I'd like you to do for me. That that God was very specific about who could approach him and in what way they needed to approach. They understood that no one, and I repeat, no one could come into the presence of God on their own terms. Remember, we looked at those passages where God said, my presence... My glory is going to come to that mountaintop. And because my glory is going to be on that mountaintop, 
you tell the rest of the Israelites, there's over a million of them, don't even look at the mountain. Or what? You'll die. Don't even let one of the animals come to the base of the mountain and set foot, one foot on that mountain or you will die. Right? I mean, God's holy. They understood that well. Right? They understood what happened when the ark teeter-tottered one time and somebody went to go grab it. Right? They were dead. They understood. You could not just come into the presence of God anywhere that you chose. You could not do it. They recognized their own sinfulness. They recognized the need to have their own sins forgiven by a holy and righteous God. What they did not understand was who was going to be the mediator between them and God. They knew they couldn't come into the presence of God without somebody else there who would be the mediator, someone who would reconcile between man and God. Who was that going to be? Well, at first it was Moses and Aaron, right? They were the ones who mediated between God, right? Uh, Moses first, and then God appointed Aaron to be the priest, right? And said, okay, now you'll do that, but you'll do it through sacrifices. That's how you'll mediate between man and God. And although later, as God appointed high priest, but to the Jew, their first question would be, how could you ever come into the presence of God without a high priest? Who's going to be the high priest? Who is it going to be? Who's going to administer the sacrifices that, under the Old Covenant that, was, that helped to reconcile man to God? Who was going to do that? Because you're saying that that Old Covenant and all those priests and all that stuff that God commanded in Leviticus and Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, all of that is not necessary anymore because we have this new covenant with Christ. And in their minds, they could not grasp the idea that they could now come into the presence of Christ. That's what we saw in chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, where the author said, you have now a great high priest, and he was referring, of course, to Christ, who is the only one called in Scripture the great high priest. Nobody else is called that. Who not only passed through the three partitions into the temple to come once a year into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood upon the mercy seat, but one who passed through the heavens to sit permanently at the right hand of the Father in the Holy of Holies, whose own blood was the sacrifice sprinkled upon the mercy seat. One whose very name signifies both his humanity and his deity, Jesus, Son of God. One who was tempted with every human weakness and yet never yielded to sin. This new covenant has a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God. But you can understand, hundreds and hundreds of years under the old covenant with a high priest mediating for them was simply difficult for them to just, okay, okay, I guess Christ is the new high priest. That was a little hard. They have a hard time grasping that. Which is why the author sets out here, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 5, to show specifically why uh, Christ is better. But to do that, he starts off and saying, let me show you what the qualifications were for the very first high priest and those that followed afterwards. Then, beginning in verse 5, I'm going to show you why Christ fulfills all of that and so much more. So, beginning in verse Chapter 5, verse 1. Let's just refresh now. The first qualification was with the high priest is that what? He must have a shared humanity. He must be a man. He had to be human. 
God did not ordain angels, nor animals, nor any other supernatural being to be the mediator between God and man. It had to be a man representing mankind in order for that to happen. It had to be someone who was a partaker of a human body and a human mind and a human nature. Angels could not be an effective mediator for man because they do not partake of the same nature as man. They could not be a high priest and represent us in the Holy of Holies because they did not they did not they were not human and they did not partake of human nature. So from the very inception of the priesthood, God ordained that it would be men who would represent men before God. That had to be somebody who had just shared weakness, that knew what it was like to be tempted, to knew what it was like to, to suffer, to knew what it was like to handle grief in their life and loss. Secondly, in verse 1, we see that the other qualification, the second high qualification for a high priest, is that they had to be able to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. That was the function of the high priest. Their primary function was to reconcile between man and God. How did they do that? By gifts and sacrifices. Right? They administered those. So the first qualification for a high priest was that they had to have a shared humanity. The second was they must be able to offer sacrifices <clears throat> for the sins of the people. Then in verses 2 and 3, the next qualification we saw for a high priest is that they must deal gently with others. Specifically, the text tells us they must deal gently with the ignorant and misguided the word deal gently, metropathio, means to have control over your emotions, to have compassion when others make mistakes or errors, or to have compassion and empathy for the sins of others. The idea here is that the high priest would not let his emotions rule his response as he was interceding for God's people. So when people would come to the high priest and say, I have this terrible burden that God has laid upon my heart for this sin that I committed. The high priest was to listen with empathy and to understand and then offer the sacrifice that God required for that sin. In other words, he would temper his responses. He would deal gently with them as they came seeking guidance for the sins of their life. What was the source of that? How was a priest be able to do that? Well, the other essential qualification for a high priest, the third one is that they had to have sincere compassion. They had to have sincere compassion. So you have a shared humanity, they had to offer uh, sacrifices for sins, and then they had to have a sincere compassion for the people that God had put under their care. And what is that sincere compassion rooted in? Are you just born with it? Did God just look around and go, well, that's a compassionate person. They could be a priest. So this one's, a, okay, that one's not. No. That sincere compassion is rooted in the fact that they too are beset with the same weaknesses. They too know what it's like to struggle against temptation. They too know what it's like to battle against sin. And because they have those own battles in their own life, they are then able to deal gently with others who have those same sins in their lives. Very essential quality. That's why the high priest had to be a human being. He had to have that shared humanity. He has to have his own struggles, his own battles, his own sense of grief. You know, he had to know what it was like to suffer against the the temptation for anger 
and bitterness and loneliness. All of those emotions. So that they could deal gently with others. And knowing what that's like is, a, is essential for a high priest to be able to intercede on behalf of man to God. Nobody would want a high priest that said, well, come on, cut it out. See you next week. See, because a fellow human being, he does know exactly what it's like to deal with those same struggles. This then gives him the reference to deal gently, compassionately with the other children of God who are struggling as well. What kind of struggling people is the author talking about? Remember, he lists two kinds of people, right? Which really is not two kinds of people, but two kinds of sins, ignorant and misguided. Each represents two categories of sins in the Old Testament. You have sins of ignorance, and then willful disobedience. Sins born of, out of ignorance are unintentional sins. What are those? Those unintentional sins are not just sins that you didn't know about. They're also sins where you acted out of passion, out of anger, where you acted rashly, where you said something that kind of basically was out of your mouth before you even realized you said it, and then you're trying to quickly get it back, but it's too late. It's already out there. There are also sins that occur because you happen to, to fall uh, in your resisting temptation. You happen to finally give in. And for all of the unintentional sins that the sinner was aware of, if they truly were repentant, for those sins God commanded that daily sacrifices were made. And for all of the sins that we committed that we were unaware of that we had committed, that's when the high priest would go in on the Day of Atonement and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat for all of those unintentional sins as the people were repenting outside, waiting for the high priest to go in. But before the high priest could go in and atone for all of those unintentional sins, they first had to do what? They had to repent for their own sins first before they could go in and help reconcile man before God. That's very important later. Tuck that away when we talk about Christ. For those sins God commanded daily sacrifices, and then we had the Day of Atonement. But notice also the high priest had to do it. Then verse 2, the other type of sin is misguided. The second kind of sin is a willful choice to sin, sometimes called presumptive sins in the Old Testament. And for this type of sin, no sacrifice can be given. There is no sacrifice for which they could be for, they could be given to account for somebody who willfully chooses to disobey God or who willfully chooses to reject the truth of God's word or reject his son. There's no you can't sacrifice a dove or a bull and then be okay and march on your way as you reject God's son. No sacrifice existed for a rebellious, disobedient, willful choice by man against God under the law, and there is none today either. For those that willfully choose to disregard the gospel, there is no sacrifice that you can make to cover that sin. I can't build enough hospitals. I can't do enough good deeds to make up for the fact that I have rejected God's Son and the truth of the gospel. For by their willful, unrepentant, misguided choice, 
They reject the only sacrifice that could atone for the rebellion against God and his son and the gospel message. That's the only one. You'd have to repent of your unbelief and surrender your life to Christ. But let me add this also before we move on, that any sin could become an unintentional sin if they would just truly repent. So we've seen the high priest's first qualification was to be human. He had to have shared humanity. Secondly, he had to be able to offer gifts and sacrifices for the sins of the people. The third, he had to have sincere compassion that was rooted in his own weakness from a shared humanity to be able to intercede on behalf of those sins that were either ignorant, un unintentional, or willful. We find our fourth qualification in verse 4 is that the high priest had to be supernaturally selected. Supernaturally selected. All the priests were divinely appointed. No priest just said, hey, I'm not from the right tribe, but I'd really like to be a priest someday. And so, yeah, go ahead. You, you seem like you'd be okay. No, they all had to be supernaturally selected. We looked at Exodus 28, verses 1 through 3, 1 through 3 and saw the appointment of Aaron. And we saw how God appointed him to be the high priest to intercede, to be the mediator between God and man. And then that served as the example for all that followed. No one could self-appoint, no one could self-promote themselves into that office without God's supernatural selection, which we would call the call today, right? The call into the ministry. Any attempts to do otherwise was dealt with rather harshly by God, as we saw when Korah and his group tried to rebel and supersede God's plan for who would be the priests. Remember that? When they rejected Moses and Aaron specifically and said, you know, we think you guys are making a little too much of yourself. We don't see anything special about you. I know you said God called you, but we think we're just as qualified as you two, so we're going to be priests. Remember what Moses did? He fell to the ground. Oh, Lord, don't strike them dead. Don't strike them dead. Don't kill them. Don't, don't. But they, they persisted in their rebellion. Then finally, God said, do you remember what he said? He said, back away. Back away from that. There was 250 of them there and their families. He said, you back away from them. You're either with them or you're with me. And all of Israel's backed away. And what happened? The earth opened up and swallowed that entire group. And then there were some who grumbled afterwards, and 14,000 died from their grumbling. The Lord made a very important point. All of these precise qualifications were to demonstrate that no one might dare approach God in the way of their own choosing. The only way to approach God is through the way that God has chosen that he will be approached, and that was through his ordained mediator. In the Old Testament, that mediator was the high priest. He had very specific qualifications that he had to meet, as we've looked at in great detail last time and just reviewed this morning. All of these priests were themselves sinners and pointed to the inadequacy of the Old Covenant and the need for a perfect high priest. That great high priest is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, beginning in verse 5, we'll begin to see how Christ fulfills all of these qualifications for a high priest and so much more. The author takes those qualifications that I just rattled off for you, 1, 2, 3, and 4, 
and he flips them in reverse order and answers them. Four, three, two, one. In verses 5 to 10. He, he deals with them in reverse order. So the very last qualification we looked at was that priests had to be supernaturally selected. By whom? By God. God has to select. God selects. God appoints who will be the mediator between man and God, not man. Well, since it's the last qualification listed, it is the first to be addressed beginning in verse 5. Let's look at that together. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 5. So also, that tells you that that is linking now with everything in verses 1 through 4. So also, Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest. So notice the name of Christ instead of the name of Jesus. The name Christ is the word Christos, which means what? Anointed one or appointed one, if you will to signify that Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, is who we are talking about. He makes that very clear. And notice that the first thing that the author of Hebrews points out is that Christ did not glorify himself to the office of priest. And this is a message we heard often from Jesus in the Gospels. Keep your place in Hebrews 5 and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 8. Look at John chapter 8, beginning in verse 50. Jesus says this, But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, the prophets also. And you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will surely never taste death. Verse 53 Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. Jesus was constantly reminding them that his whole earthly mission was about the glory of the Father. His whole earthly mission was about... Uh, completing the will of the Father. Again and again and again. This is just one passage. However, trying to convince the Jews that Jesus was their great high priest was no small order, especially since they knew he did not come from the tribe of Levi. What tribe did he come from? He came from the tribe of Judah. Very good. So as he's done throughout the book of Hebrews, the author moves the Old Testament uh, goes to the Old Testament scriptures to prove his point. That's what he's been doing in the previous four chapters. He does it again. Look at the second part of Hebrews, chapter 5, uh, verse 5. The second part, verse uh, part B, but he who said to him, he who said, who is the he in this verse? That's God the Father. That's God the Father. He who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Jesus did not assume the office of priest because he wanted to glorify himself. Instead, God the Father appointed him to that office. Who appointed Christ as a high priest? God the Father did. What is one of the four essential qualifications for being a high priest? 
You had to be supernaturally selected. Did Jesus qualify then to be a high priest? Did God the Father appoint Jesus Christ as high priest? Yes or no? Yes. Does he qualify? Yes. Amen. He did. You bet he did. Now notice the quote that the Spirit has the author of Hebrews use is from Psalm 2, verse 7. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm. It's about the Messiah. It's also a royal psalm. It's a psalm that they would quote at the coronation of a king. But we've actually seen it earlier in this same book, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5. You can look at that, just to remind yourself. We see the same quotation there, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, where it speaks about Jesus being declared the Son of God. So if you recall, this was to show how Christ fulfilled the prophecy that God had said about a future king who would rule on the throne of David, who would be from the line of David, who would rule eternally. Do you remember that? Way back in chapter 1, I know it's a long time ago. But then the author pointed there and talked about how Christ is the Son of God and how he's superior to the angels because he fulfilled what God had proclaimed through the Davidic covenant, that one would come in the line of David who would rule from the throne of David over all the nations, that he's king over all. He was given a new title, God's Son, which speaks to this new this relationship that God, has, God the Father has with the Son. That's not to say that God the Father and God the Son did not exist eternally. They have. But this new title... Son of God, was conferred upon him when he had completed what the Father, what the Father's will was. This divine sonship language from Psalm 2, we also see combined with Isaiah 42 verse 1 at Jesus' baptism. We see Psalm 2 quoted there. We also see the same verse quoted in, at the transfiguration. Notice Notice the pattern here. The same psalm, the psalm about the coronation of the Messiah, the coronation of the new king, who has this new, this divine relationship with the Father because of what he has accomplished in fulfilling God's promises. But all of that in Hebrews chapter 1 is to show how Jesus was superior to the prophets and the angels. But now when we come back to Hebrews chapter 5, the context here is about being a high priest. Why does the author of Hebrews use a verse that talks about Christ's divine deity and his relationship with the Father and his fulfillment as a king in the context of being a high priest? Well, the answer to that question is found another place where Psalm 2 is quoted, and that's in Acts chapter 13. So let's go there. Acts chapter 13, verse 33. Acts 13, verse 33. Let's actually pick it up, verse 30, for a little context here. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people, 
And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son today, I have begotten you. So here we see Paul using Psalm 2 verse 7 to support the whole meaning of the resurrection. That what was accomplished at the resurrection? What was accomplished? Christ conferred, God the Father conferred this new title on him, Son of God. He's the first one generated, first in order, first in preeminence. First fruits, if you will, of the resurrected. Notice that text, today I have begotten you. He's not referring to Jesus' birth at Bethlehem. He's referring to his resurrection from the dead. Look at the context in Acts 13. So Christ resurrected from the dead is this glorious new resurrected body, and he's now seated at the right hand of the Father. So not only was Christ anointed as Son of God because he fulfilled all of God's covenant promises through the Davidic covenant, not only was he also king, but Peter confirms this about the resurrection as well. Look at Acts chapter 2. So we have the Apostle Paul talking about the purpose of this resurrection. Now we have Peter in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, beginning in verse 29. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried in his tomb and and his tomb is with us this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him an oath to seat one of his descendants on the throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, and that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, Lord, sit in my right hand until my enemies make a footstool of your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God had made him both Lord and Christ, thus this Jesus whom you crucified. But that's not all. Because of the resurrection, he was also anointed our great high priest because of the atoning work on the cross and subsequent resurrection from the dead. When Aaron was ordained to the priesthood, he offered the sacrifices of animals. But when Jesus Christ was ordained as our great high priest, the sacrifice was not the sacrifice of blood of bulls and goats. It was the sacrifice of God's own son. So Christ is both anointed king and anointed great, uh, great high priest. That's not something he sought after for personal gain. That's not something that he refused either when the Father called upon him. Christ made it very clear that he saw his work by divine appointment. Turn to John chapter 17 real quick. John 17. Verse 4, this is Christ's high priestly prayer. 
in the garden. He says here, I glorified you for on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. So the point here is that Christ was divinely chosen, was called by divine appointment to be both king and high priest. And both of those offices, king and priest, came not because Jesus chose it, not because he moved himself into that role, but because God supernaturally selected. God called him into that role. Now, Jesus is eternally God. He's eternally the second person of the Godhead. His title, Son of God, was bestowed upon him for that atoning work on the cross. And because he is the eternal Son of God, he's also the eternal King. But his office of high priest could not begin until the Incarnation. Why is that? How can he be eternally the Son and eternally the King? But he can't be the eternal high priest until the incarnation. Because one of the requirements of a high priest is that he had to be a man. Do you remember that? He had to be human. He had to have a shared humanity. He had to have a human body. He had to have a human mind. He had to share, partake of a human nature. So Christ could not be our eternal high priest until he became a man. He had, that was one of the qualifications. So God decided long ago that a high priest must be a man if he was to reconcile sinful man before God. And reconciling sinful man before God can only be done by a man. Not angels. Only men would be appointed to reconcile men before God. Secondly, again, Jesus was from what tribe? The tribe of Judah. What tribe did God declare that he must be from to be a priest? That's right, Levi. So if Jesus is our high priest, then he must be a priest from a different order than from the Arianic order, from the, from the Levitical priesthood. In fact, he is. In verse 6 tells us he's from the order of Melchizedek. And we'll learn a lot more about the significance and the role of Melchizedek as we move through the rest of the chapter and beyond. Go back to Hebrews chapter 5. Look at verse 6. Just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. This is a quote from Psalm 110. Psalm 110. Like Psalm 2, we've actually heard this psalm quoted before in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13. But this time the author does not quote Psalm 110, verse 1. He quotes Psalm 110, verse 4. Verse 1 talks about this messianic king who would rule the nations and make them his footstool. Remember that? Look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13. You can find it there, quoted. But to which the angels he has ever said, Sit in my right hand. Here's Psalm 110, verse 1. Sit in my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's Psalm 110, verse 1. But if we were to look at Psalm 110, verse 4, and I'll just read it for you here. It would sound like this. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. See, verse 1 talked about this messianic king who would rule the nations and that he would come to reign, fulfilling all the promises God had made to David. But verse 4 specifically prophesied that this king would also be declared a priest. Now, 
this would have been a startling revelation to those in this little Hebrew church listening. Why? Because even though Psalm 110 has been applied to Jesus already, back in chapter 1, this is the first time that Jesus has been identified with the priesthood of Melchizedek. So in this verse, Psalm 110, verse 4, becomes the intense subject matter of the next three chapters. This psalm, this idea that Christ is from this order of Melchizedek, gets broken down verse by verse, section by section. Because the author of Hebrews wants, to, wants us to know how and why this is so important for us to understand. Specifically in the first part of the verse where it states that the Lord has sworn an oath and will not change his mind. Means that when he appoints this person as the great high priest, nothing can change that. Ever. It's hard to imagine a more emphatic statement about the appointment of Jesus as our great high priest. Now there are two things that make this priesthood of Christ very unique. First of all, this high priest is a high priest for how long? Forever. The Arianic priest, of course, all died, and when they died, a new priest was appointed in the same line from the line of Aaron. And the importance of this we'll discuss in just a minute, but let's just say for now that that little fact is important enough to be mentioned six times in the next two chapters. The second important distinction is that Christ is from the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek, we're going to hear a lot about him in the next couple chapters, but let me just introduce him to you here. He's only mentioned in the Old Testament two times. Once in Genesis chapter 14, if you want to get a head start, you can look at that. Genesis 14, beginning in verse 18, and Psalm 110, verse 4, that we just looked at, that was just quoted in our Hebrews chapter 5, verse 6. The name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Melech in Hebrew means king. Zedek means righteousness, king of righteousness. Melchizedek. We also know that he was the king of Salem, which most commentators believe is Jerusalem. And but what's most unique thing about Melchizedek is that he is both a king and a priest. A king and a priest. You remember in the Old Testament when King Uzziah tried to be both a king and a priest? That didn't work out so well, did it? The fact remains that through the entirety of the Old Testament and the history of Israel, the high priesthood was never combined with the office of a king. No king ever entered into the Holy of Holies to offer the blood atonement for his people. Only the high priest could do that. Only in Melchizedek and now in Christ do we see these two offices united into one person. Only in Melchizedek and only in Christ. So Melchizedek becomes a picture, a type of our Lord Jesus Christ as a heavenly high priest who is a priest forever. Christ became the sacrifice on earth according to the Father's divine will and appointment. And upon accomplishing his atoning work on the cross, he was appointed our great high priest. And through the resurrection, we see that Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the Father, where he is our king forever and our great high priest forever, eternally. And all of these truths will be developed in chapters 7 through 10. They're just introduced here. But now, think for a minute what a tremendous effect that would have had on all those people just listening in that little church in Hebrews.
especially those who were tempted to renounce their profession in Christ and go back to the Old Covenant, only to find out now that Jesus Christ is not only the Messiah, but he's also the divinely appointed king and also divinely appointed great high priest, all in one. He is the Messiah. He is the prophet, priest, and king, all in one. And he's far greater than any earthly priest, even greater than the Arianic priest. And one of the most prominent ways in which Jesus is far superior as our great high priest is the fact that he's eternal, and none of the other priests were. And so with the time we have left this morning, I just want to take this one little aspect and answer that question most of you are asking right now. Pastor, so what? Thank you for all of that theology. My head is spinning now with everything you just mind-dumped in there. So what does that mean to me? Why is that important that I understand that Christ was appointed? Why is that important, Why is that, important that I understand that he's our eternal great high priest? Well, let me answer your question by asking you a question. What is the function of the priest? To reconcile man to God. How did they do that in the Old Testament? Through the offerings of sacrifices for sins. What sacrifices? Blood sacrifices. But each of those sacrifices in the Old Testament, in all of those Levitical priesthood, all of those sacrifices were temporary. All of them. They were just a temporary covering for your sins. But now... The eternal Son of God, the eternal High Priest, has made a sacrifice not with bulls and goats, but with his own blood. It's his blood he carried into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled upon the mercy seat for all of those ignorant and misguided sins that all of us do every day. which means the sacrifice that he made for your sins and the sacrifice that you believed in is the foundation for your belief in the gospel. The sacrifice that was confirmed by the resurrection and was according to the will of the Father. That means that sacrifice that he made was once and forever. Which means that eternal sacrifice he made for your salvation is eternal. Which means your salvation is eternal. Flip over Hebrews chapter 7 real quick. I just want you to see this real quick. Hebrews 7 verse 21. For they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in great numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues, how long? Forever. Holds his priesthood for how long? Forever. My friends, there's no greater testimony for your eternal salvation than the fact that the eternal Son of God, your eternal high priest, made an eternal sacrifice for your sins. Who now sits at the right hand of the Father and makes intercession for you. Beloved, we have so much more to discover in the next few weeks as we look at this ministry of our great high priest. But until then, 
Let us stop and give thanks for this extraordinary benefit. Because we all have the assurance of salvation because Jesus is our eternal high priest. And because he's the eternal son of God and because his sacrifice is eternal, our salvation, what we put our faith and trust in, the truth of the gospel message, our salvation is eternal as well. And nothing can change that. Nothing can change that. Isn't that wonderful? If Christ had not been eternal, then that sacrifice would have been temporary and the next high priest would come in. But because he is eternal, that means your salvation is eternal as well. Praise God for that. Amen? Amen. My friends, if you're here today and you've never trusted Christ as your personal Savior, if you don't know without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, that he was dead, buried, crucified, and rose again on the third day according to Scriptures. If, you don't, if you've not put your faith and trust in that, I pray that today would be the day. And that you would have that same assurance that we've been talking about here this morning. That same assurance that, that your faith and trust that you put in the truth of that gospel message assures your salvation. Not because of you, but because of the atoning work of Jesus Christ our Lord. If you've never done that, I pray today would be the day that you would do that, that you would not presume upon God's grace one more breath, but instead surrender your life today. And for those of you who've already made the most important decision you'll ever make in your entire life, give thanks to Almighty God that your salvation is eternal. Not temporary, but eternal because of Christ's atoning work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again, Lord, for the truth of your word. Thank you, Lord. We had a lot to digest here this morning. It was pretty heavy, but I pray, Lord, you'd help us to sort that out in our minds. Lord, that we had some good notes or we're listening carefully or perhaps even listen to it again uh, via the podcast. Whatever it takes, Lord, I pray that we would have our minds saturated with the truth of your word. Thank you, Lord, that your word convicts us and encourages us and sometimes rebukes us. This morning, Lord, it assures us of our eternal salvation through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank you, dear Lord, for this wonderful promise. Be with us now, Lord, the rest of the day as we meditate on your truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand, shall we?